This week has not been my best week physically. I'm going to be honest. If you, if you notice, my voice is a little raspy. I apologize ahead of time. I have this like, real, like whooping cough right now, so I'll try to mute if I do that, okay? So it doesn't just ruin all of the sound. Uh, I found out that I had bronchitis early on this week, uh, and it just went downhill from there. I don't know if you guys have seen the memes on the internet of like your wife whenever she's sick versus your husband when he's sick. Have y'all seen those? And the wife's like doing more things than before, and, and the husband's just like laid out like crying. That's me. That was the Marley house this week um, because I got sick. Um, and, and even though um, I, I, I am uh, really dependent and needy when I get sick, I do not like being relegated uh, to my bed. Um, needy, weak, clingy, whiny, codependent, um, don't like that, okay? And I would say that's not just something unique to me. I would say that's probably you too. If, if someone comes to you and they call you needy, weak, clingy, whiny, or codependent, how does that make you feel? It's not exactly like the things that I, uh, that I look forward to. And, um, and when we even give off a semblance of these things, or if somebody even says these things about us, I think that we have a tendency to repulse from them, right? Uh, and probably rightfully so. But I think that the idea of being dependent um, and, and really repulsing away from that goes even deeper. I think the, the very culture that we swim in every single day values a kind of hyper-rugged individualism that by its very nature rejects dependence, but I would say particularly rejects the idea that we would be dependent on God or a God. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that foster this kind of individualism in our culture. Uh, none of them more prevalent than at the very root, a rejection of authority. If you're a parent here, then you already get this with your tiny kid, right? A rejection of authority. Um, even as we grow older, there's a few things that define us. We want to define our own life. We want to make our own decisions. Uh, we want to do things on our own with minimal input and minimal authority. And if we can get help from you and you helping us to do what we want to do, that's fantastic. If along with that help comes advice or input from you, nah, bro, I'm not interested. Uh, we don't really want that that much. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a difficult time and an odd time to parent your kids. Do you guys kind of feel this? Um, I, I've sensed this for myself. It's difficult because our culture kind of paints parenting as this, um, like you're a coach, pseudo friend, cheerleader. Um, like your job as a parent is to nurture and provide and care, but you need to take every step possible. Don't correct, don't discipline, don't be overly harsh. It's like you're always kind of teeter-tottering that line. Moms, you probably felt this when your toddler's throwing a tantrum at H-E-B, and you know you can't really do much about it, particularly in our culture. Like there was a time where a toddler throws a tantrum, and a mom's like, whoosh, whoosh, real quick. You know what I'm talking about? Like quick spank, and you know, everybody's like, well, that's normal, you know? Now, if you do that, like, you're going to go to jail. Like, it's going to happen. Like, you're going to be on the news. And so you've, you've created these, like, unique tactics to try to get your kid to cut it, right? It's like you just give them a slight pinch, like, somewhere where they could, would not be seen at a doctor's appointment. <laughs> and you just give them the look, you know, the stare. My wife has the stare. And the funny thing is now Jonas does this thing. Uh, if we're having a conversation with someone, he's being disobedient, we're going to give him the stare. And he's got this new sassy thing where he gives her the same stare back. I can't help but laugh. It's hilarious. And she'll go like this to Jonas, and then he'll go and roll his eyes. <laughs> He's a sass, right? It's this idea that all or most authority is crooked and has to be rejected. And it's given rise to this kind of individualism that rejects God and re certainly rejects a dependence upon God. It's kind of like this. If there is a God, we don't need him. We're not desperate for his presence uh, he's more so, if there is a God, he's like this divine clockwinder who has kind of wound up the universe 
And now he's letting it go, and he stands at afar and watches. But this is our time to play out what happens on the earth. Now, what's the problem with this? I think the problem with this is that that kind of way of life just isn't working. Um, Check it out. We live in a more prosperous time than ever before in history. Like when your kids grow up to graduate, they will have more options in regards to vocation, furthering their education, uh, deciding on their location where they can live or want to live than ever before. Um, Modern technology has created modern conveniences that our grandparents and great-grandparents would only have dreamed of when they were growing up. Weird things like you can talk to a robot and tell them what what to shop for, and then it'll show up on your front doorstep. I kid you not. That's what Alexa is, right? Put paper towels in my shopping basket, pay for it, and then it shows up, right? There's a level of convenience that our grandparents would have only dreamed of. And then still, check this out, and I'm not making this up, this is just statistically true, things like depression, addiction, anxiety, and suicide are at all-time highs. Isn't that odd? Like, we're in a culture that everything we could have ever dreamed of or really is kind of offered, and even things we didn't dream of is offered quickly, and yet we're still anxious. More anxious than our parents were. More anxious than our grandparents were. We're still depressed, more depressed than they were. Um, I think the shocking one and the saddest one is we're still... We are, we are, people are taking their own lives at a rate higher than ever before because of these kind of anxieties and depressions. I think you can tell a lot about a culture based on the art of that culture. Um, like, like, check this out. Let me ask this question. What are the most popular books and movies of the last decade, if you guys think about them? Hunger Games, Divergent, right? These kind of young What are they depicting? Like this kind of post-apocalyptic doom This dystopian future, right? Isn't that odd in relation to the culture that we live in now? It's like everything seems to be going exactly where progress is taking us, and yet all of us are thinking this is going bad. Everyone, without saying it, is really saying, there's no way this lasts. Or this isn't even that good, maybe. Like, despite us getting the chance to chase after everything that we want, we find ourselves desperately longing for some authority to come in. Even though we've rejected authority, we want someone to tell us, where do we find meaning? You ever thought about why politics are so crazy right now? Like, why they seem so polarizing? One of the pastors that I listen to from Australia, he says it like this. uh, We all want a kingdom, but nobody wants a king. Like everybody has a vision of the good life. Everybody has a vision of what things should be like. And we all long for that, but nobody wants a king. Nobody wants an authority. Particularly, nobody wants God to be king. And then what happens is when we realize, you know what, without anyone that's going to come and actually be an authority in our lives, we end up not getting what we really want. So what do we do? We reject our heavenly king and we ask for a politician, right? We think that someone's going to fix it. And this is left and right. I'm not making a political statement. It's just human condition. We want someone to make it right. Does that sound familiar, though? Remember in the Bible, we did a Bible in a year last year. If you guys remember, there's a story about Samuel. And Samuel goes to Israel and says, we have the promised land. God is our king. And what do the children of Israel say? We want an earthly king. And Samuel gets so angry. He says, why do you reject God as your king? And God responds to Samuel and says, Samuel, don't be discouraged. They're not rejecting you. They don't want me. And so in in response, in judgment, God gives them Saul. He gives them the king they want. See, in our culture, we, we, we don't want authority. And then when we realize it doesn't go well, we seek for any authority other than God. And then standing in the middle of that kind of craziness, 
the Bible stands forth and still says this. You were designed by God to live dependent on God. And you were designed by God to live interdependently on each other. Like the Bible stands and just does unapologetically says what none of us want to hear. God still made us, created us, stands in authority over us, and you can't find true meaning, joy, hope, peace apart from him. It's the way you were made. These are the stories in scripture, right? Let's just go through them. So if God wants us to be dependent on him, let's look through some of the narratives. Noah, build a boat in the desert. Trust me, it's gonna rain. Abraham, go from your country and kindred. Walk in the desert. Trust me, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Joseph, I know you've been in prison and you just now got a good job. Here's what I want you to do. All the economic boom that's happening right now, all this grain you're getting, put it in a barn for seven straight years. Don't sell it. Trust me, there's gonna be a famine and you're gonna be honored for it. Moses, go to Pharaoh. Here's what I want you to demand him. Tell Pharaoh to let his entire workforce that he gets for free, also known as slaves, to let him go. Trust me, I'm gonna redeem you guys. Joshua, march around Jericho seven times. Send the band first. (laughs) Trust me, the city will be destroyed. Gideon, trim your army size down to 300 people. Go into battle, not with your swords, but with trumpets and jars. Trust me, you will win. David, go confront the Philistine giant. With what? With five smooth stones and a slingshot. Trust me, I'll cause you to conquer him. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he does not help at all. Peter, step out of the boat and walk to me. Where? On the water. Trust me, I won't let you sink. I mean, God even gets frustrated in the Bible whenever Israel tries to depend on anyone other than him. Isaiah 31 and 1 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. He's angry. Why are they going to all these people and not coming to me? Why do they trust in their horses and they don't trust in me? They they were born to be dependent on me. This is the pattern of God. He places us in circumstances that require great trust and dependence, and that's where he has chosen to reveal his glory. Or like John Piper says, he says, the Christian lives a life based on this one line, God gets the glory and we get the joy. That's the interplay. That's the interchange. You don't get the glory but you get the joy. God gets the glory when we depend on him. Paul continues this letter to the Philippians, and what he's doing here is he's giving us directives. He's giving the church at Philippi directives regarding the dependent life that Jesus calls us all to live. In the midst of life's greatest challenges, Paul's telling us these are the kind of habits that the dependent Christian should exhibit. And I want to say this before I hop in to this text. Paul, what Paul says here, listen, it's not going to sound revolutionary to you, I promise. Like, it's not. If you've been at church at all, these are going to seem like, duh. But here's what also I can promise you. If we actually took him seriously and began to live this way, it very well could revolutionize our lives. Because the many of the things that we know that we ought to do, we just don't have a penchant to do as Christians. We just don't. We think we have a better way, and part of that is our individualism that takes root in us. And Paul leads us to something different. So let's start with where Paul starts. First, I'm going to read the first three verses because I think they give us a context for what's actually happening in the church. So starting in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I love verse 1 because it just shows Paul's love for this church. Doesn't he just love them? 
My brothers, whom I love, I long for you. You're my joy. You're my crown. Stand firm, my beloved, in this way. And then he's going to do something which I think is interesting here. He's going to do a little housekeeping with some of the people there. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sintich to agree in the Lord. Talked about this before. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But what does he say? These two women in the church are arguing, and he says, y'all need to get it together. Figure it out and unify. But I love this because he doesn't do this in a way, even Paul now can speak to our culture, he doesn't do this in a way that devalues these women or makes himself set up as an authority over them that is domineering. Instead, he uses authority to also say this, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. I love that Paul says, I labored side by side with these women in the gospel and they are valuable to me. Paul in this culture could have not said that. In fact, him saying that was very countercultural for him to say, women come alongside me in this ministry and I value them. So he didn't use his authority to domineer them. And then he says, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now what's Paul doing? I think he's setting the stage for this dependent life. And I just wrote down one line that I think the first three verses help us to understand the dependent life that we are supposed to live on God is not meant to be only in extraordinary circumstances of suffering. But this kind of dependent life is meant to mark our entire lives, even the ordinary every day. Now, that may sound like a no-brainer, but think about it for a second. Aren't you often more prayerful when things go wrong? Aren't you often more prayerful whenever things get critical? And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. But do you ever find yourself that you only, find your, you only see uh, the prayer closet as a necessity whenever things are actually going tough? You only find reading your scriptures as valuable whenever there's something that you feel like you need to change in your life or needs to change, your circumstances are tough? And I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying, uh, in the everyday throes of the Philippian church, when two gals are just having an argument, like, which probably happens on the regular, um, we need to live dependent lives on God because it's the only way that we can actually find consistent, repetitive, lengthy, long-lasting joy. Rather than just having these moments of desperation where we cry out to God, Paul says, let's live this kind of dependent life all the time. I think that's what he's getting at when he sets this context. But then he starts in verse number four, and he lays out what really is, I think, the first habit or characteristic of the dependent Christian, which is that we should be people of prayer and supplication. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say? Well, I love what Paul does here is he actually talks a little bit about something that is very prevalent in our day, which is anxiety. Um, He says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead combat anxiety with a grateful heart that lays your needs and requests out before a sovereign God. That's a thought. If you are someone who struggles with anxiety, I would like to help you and maybe release some of that anxiety this morning by saying that you're not alone. Anxiety Although very serious, you need to know that you're not odd or weird, uh, that you're not an isolated incident or case, that if you start having heartbeat that races 
in certain circumstances, clammy hands when you came into church this morning because you don't know what you're gonna do around people. When Matt said, hey, just like Christ extended grace to us, turn around and greet your neighbor, and you started thinking, oh my gosh, this is why I should have sat alone, right? Or I should have went to the bathroom in the third song. Or I should have pretended my kid was crying, right? You're like, oh, gotta go, sorry, you know, whatever. That anxiety exists in many of us and in different facets. And Paul tells us here that we should combat that anxiety primarily by letting our requests be known to God in prayer and in supplication. And the promise here is that we will get peace that surpasses understanding. How many of us in times of our lives, we think that if we would just understand what God was doing, then everything would be okay and we wouldn't be so anxious about the future? Paul says that's not true. What you need more than anything is the peace of God that surpasses understanding. Because even if God were able to spell out for you all of the things that are happening in your life and why they're happening, you would still struggle with the authority factor, which is that you think you could do it a better way. And in the end, would lead you to more anxiety. Instead, Paul says what you need is peace that God offers you in prayer. I think what he's getting at is that there's something about bringing your anxieties, your cares, your concerns before God that shifts this inappropriate weight from your heart onto God and brings you supernatural peace. What do I mean by an inappropriate weight that lays on your heart? Well, I think that many of us, we struggle with feeling the need to be omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, and ultimately sovereign over our lives. We have this weight on us that we feel like we should be everywhere, we should be knowing everything, and we should be all-powerful, particularly parents, moms. Maybe you feel like you should always be there for your kids, you should always have all the right answers for your kids, and you should always have the way in which you can step in and help them whenever they're struggling. And inevitably, we will find ourselves in times where we can't step in and help them and do what they really need. We can't change the circumstance. And anxiety can begin to breed in our hearts and I think that's an inappropriate weight because what we need to repent for is that we ever thought we could be all-powerful everywhere and all-knowing. We aren't sovereign. And at the moment that we're able to honestly and deliberately admit that we are not God and surrender, submit to the truth that we have a sovereign, loving God, peace can be the result. It's a simple call from Paul, right? How do you live a dependent life? Pray. But isn't it difficult? I don't know. I'll I'll be honest with myself. I think it's not natural for me sometimes. It's natural for me to try to do something. George Mueller said it like this, and the quote should be on the screen behind you. He said this, and I love that this comes from George Mueller because he's a, he's like the prayer of prayers. This guy was, he, he lived his whole life. He said his life mission was that people would see that God still answers prayer through his life. I mean, that's intense, right? Listen to what he says about prayer, though. I think it gives us hope. He says, in our natural state, we dislike dealing with God alone. Through our natural alienation from God, we shrink from him and from eternal realities. This cleaves to us, more or less, even after our regeneration. George Mueller says this happens even after you become a Christian. Hence, it's more or less, even as believers, we have the same shrieking from sta- shrinking from standing with God alone, from depending on him alone, from looking to him alone. And yet this is the very position, catch this, in which we ought to be if we wish that our faith would be strengthened. The more I am in a position to be tried in faith with reference to my body, my family, my service to the Lord, my business, etc., the more I have an opportunity to see God's help and deliverance. What does Mueller say? He says two things. Number one, 
We all struggle with prayer because it's against the natural old man, old woman inclinations of our sinful heart. We want to figure it out on our own. But he says, here's the thing. If we want to be strengthened in our faith and in the end strengthened in our joy, then it's in those needy and dependent places that we cry out to God that we will find God as a provider. There's no other way. There's no other way for us to know that God's trustworthy unless we trust him with something, right? There's no other way for us to experience that God is dependable if we don't depend on him for something that actually matters. This is why I always make that joke that some of us can struggle in home group because our only prayer requests become, um, you know, praying for my sick dog. You guys ever been in that home group? It's like you do prayer requests. Nobody wants to pray for their deepest, darkest sins. Most of them want to pray for like the veterinarian to be skilled, you know, or something like that. Um, And the reason for that is because there's not a lot at stake. There's not a lot that it costs you uh, in case God doesn't answer that prayer or also there's a vulnerability element. But to say, I pray for the salvation of my wayward child and to say it publicly and to plead with God alone in your prayer closet for it. Well, now, now there's an opportunity for disappointment. But George Mueller says that same step of faith that causes you to feel the weight of potential disappointment is the same step of faith that will strengthen you and bring joy when God does what only God can do. This is why we're called to pray. Because to know God is to experience God's provision, to experience God for who he is and for what he's done. You see, prayer is the primary dependent action of the Christian. When we finally decide to deal with God alone for our needs and he alone answers, that's where the greatest joy is offered. So I want to encourage you uh, this morning, be silent before God this week. Abandon the busyness of the world and choose to sit quietly with God. Let your, own, let your own needs and your family's needs be known to him. Ask him for what you desire and see if he won't meet you there. Because I believe he will. Paul goes on, he says this, Finally, my brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Are these not things that Christian or non-Christian in the room, are these not things we all long for? I think they are. Like if we think about our best life or we think about um, what it might look like, I think that uh, being around true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise people would be a great friendship list, would it not? Being that person yourself might be a bucket list, right? That you could be that kind of person. What if every business that you ever bought a product from were those things? That'd be kind of nice. What if the business that you own always exhibited this? You never had to worry about employees not being that way. Like what if you were a business owner that never had to worry about someone stealing from you that you trusted? That'd be awesome. And these are the things that Paul encourages the Philippians to meditate on. And not coincidentally, I think that these things give us a depiction of the kingdom life that we want, but we don't want a king. But secondarily, I think that this gives us a snapshot of gospel promises and gospel realities that are already true for the Christian. What do I mean? Well, let me ask you this question. Do we not already serve a true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent Savior who is more worthy of our praise than anyone else? How about this question? Has he not already promised us that he's going to make us like him, and so he's going to make us this way? He has. 
Now, but what Paul does here is he says, we need to meditate on this. We need to think on this. We need to ruminate on this. We need to consider this. Why does Paul want us to meditate on these things? Well, here's why. Because the meditations of our mind will always fuel the longings of our heart. If you're taking notes, maybe write that down. The meditations of your mind will always fuel the longings of your heart. Okay, I wanted to do something fun with us this morning. I hope that it's helpful for you. It was fun for me as I was preparing. Um, I have some slides that I'm going to show you. Uh, Is there any place that we mindlessly meditate on garbage than social media? Anybody else? Like with the midterms just happened. Is there anybody else who wishes that you could snooze every political post that ever existed? Like I wish there was a button for that. There's not. It's like, how are you going to have a snooze button, a stop following button, a block button, but not a stop the junk button? You know, like I wish we just had that. Um, And yet social media stands as something that can be really dangerous for us. Why? Because it affirms the lie that everyone's opinion on every subject is equally valuable. Now, I know for some of us, maybe if we have more of a millennial mindset, you might think, well, they are valuable. Listen, I didn't say that you aren't valuable as a person, but here's what I need you to know. Your opinion's not valuable and equally as valuable on every subject as someone else. You want me to prove it to you? Let's say the difference between doctors and dentists. When you have a toothache, if your neighbor who is a neurosurgeon tells you, oh, it's no big deal, here's an aspirin, it'll be fixed, or your neighbor who is a dentist says you have a root canal, it needs to be taken out now or else you could become septic. Whose opinion is more valuable, the one who studied dentistry or, or the smart, wealthy, very hyper-intelligent doctor next door? I would hope you'd take the dentist's advice, I really would. And I could have done that with something different, right? It's, the, the chasm is way worse on Facebook and social media. And yet everyone feels like their opinion should be equally as valued. You can be valued as a person and me still say, I don't value your opinion on on chemistry and physics, right? I value someone who actually studied chemistry and physics. So here's what I did for fun. I have some examples of just, I literally just searched life wisdom quotes. You probably have seen these all the time on social media. And I'm going to go through some of them and let's just talk a little bit before we get out of here this morning. Okay, let's show the first one, Alex. Beautiful things happen in your life when you distance yourself from all negative things. Okay, now that one sounds pretty because you're like, some of you who have lived life, you're like, that's right, just alienate yourself from all the bunk people in your life, right? Um, so let's talk about the worldview behind this though. It's saying this, real joy comes from protecting yourself. That might sound smart, except the fact that Jesus says real joy comes from denying yourself, and sometimes you might walk headlong into someone who is negative, and God even calls you to that, to deny yourself. So it's actually antithetical to what Jesus said, and yet we sometimes will post it because it seems good. Okay, let's go to the next one. This is my life, my story, my book. I will no longer let anyone else write it, nor, irony, there's a typo, Will I apologize for the edits that I make? Okay, let's talk about this one a little bit. I'm the writer of my story. No one else gets a say. And not only that, but I refuse to repent anymore for things that I do, even if they hurt others, even if they're unhealthy, even if they harm the people I care about the most. I'm tired of saying I'm sorry. Just deal with me. This is a lot like the one that I've seen a lot going around with Marilyn Monroe on it. Apparently, this was her quote. I don't even think it was her quote. Let's say it was. If you don't love me at my worst, you, can't, you don't deserve me at my best. Meaning, accept me for whatever the heck I do because that's what I deserve. Okay. 
Sounds good, especially if you're fed up in life. Like, guys, gals, if you read that whenever you had a hard day, you'd probably be like, that's right, I'm tired of it. I'm done with people telling me what I should say, sorry. And so subconsciously, you're embracing something. It's just not true. It can feel good and still not be true. Okay, let's go to the next one. This one just, honestly, this one was just comical to me. Um, don't be a parrot in life, be an eagle. A parrot talks too much and can't fly high, but an eagle is silent and has the willpower to touch the sky. I don't even know what to do with that one. I literally, I put that one up there because I was thinking, what's the worldview behind it? I don't know. I just think they were trying to make something pithy. And, but when you read that, you're like, mm-hmm, yeah, I want to be an eagle, not a parrot. That's right. Eagle, not a parrot. Why are we assuming that the parrot has no willpower? I don't understand. Anyway, all right, let's continue. Let's, let's go to the next one. This is a funny one, too. Some people are life-sucking, energy-draining, negative bags of annoying hell. <laughs> this was a life wisdom quote. I put this one up here because at first I was like, okay, that's true. No, I'm just kidding. I put this one up here because if you're having a rough day, right, this one just kind of affirms to you, what you that you could just stop liking people. What does it ignore? Well, it ignores the basic truth of the scriptures that says that people are image bearers of God, valuable no matter how awful they can be, and that we ought to treat them as such. But it's easy to post, isn't it? All right, let's go to the next one. Sometimes you have to forget what you feel and remember what you deserve. Okay. Well, this one negates the fact that the Bible says all we deserve is hell and Jesus saved us from it. So that's unhelpful. If I remembered what I deserve, that actually makes things worse, not better. Thank you, wisdom quotes. If my whole life is just thinking about what I deserved, well, no. This is actually trying to tell you, listen, even if you feel guilty, just remember you deserve the best. You deserve comfort. You deserve all of these things. And anything less than that, you don't need to accept, which is not true. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Do you ever just want to pack up and leave out of the blue without saying anything to anyone, like just leave and start a new life? I kid you not, I got these straight from the, this is the first page of Wisdom Life Quotes. Um, I read that one and I was like, this one really isn't a quote. It's just somebody asking a general question. Um, but you know what it really does, I think, is in, some, in, in a weird way, this just kind of normalizes abandonment. Like basically it builds a group think, it builds a group of people that can say, you know what, I feel that way too. So if we all do that, it's no, really no big deal because I'm really just prioritizing myself. Notice how all the first ones we read just kind of build into this life of, if I don't feel like I'm getting the life I deserve, I'll just push the eject button on it, even if I'm responsible to those people because I deserve better. It normalizes something that is actually treacherous and it does it with a green background like no big deal, right? All right. And then let's do the last one, I think. Life is too short to tolerate things that don't make you happy. Okay, so let's talk about this one. What is the real root? I think it's kind of a YOLO, right? Like you only live once, so if things don't make you happy, bail on them. All the time, bail on them. Now, what's the problem with that one? Well, it doesn't leave room for things that I think are integral, necessary, and they are really the ingredients that allow us to even have things like modern-day conveniences, like this, hardship, suffering, and sacrifice. It just eliminates those as, as at all virtuous or necessary for good. Which I think if, if, we're, if we're just trying to get pithy uh, life statements, we can kind of jive with that. Um, my, my press back would be moms in the room, that if you've given birth. Does that even make sense to you? Because what did you have to endure in order for that child to enter the world? 
it wasn't your happiest moment. If you say it was your happiest, I just want to press back on you. You're saying what happened after was happy. What happened during, not so much, right? Can we agree? And so it just isn't, it, like, if you go to the gym, guys, and I know some of you are like, no, I love the gym. I love the pain. No, you've read too many Facebook memes. You don't love marathons when it's in the middle of it. You love what comes after. Therefore, you'll endure that for what comes after. This ignores all of the middle and just says, hey, we all need finish lines only in life, and that's all you need. That's all you can have. And don't accept anything other than celebrations. This is a culture that's all about feasting, never about fasting, right? It's all about celebrations and parties. It's never about the day of mourning. No funerals, only weddings all the time. Every day's a Friday. That's this culture. And it breeds it, right? Okay. So why did I do that? Well, long before social media, Paul understood the life of the mind, that we need space for meditating on truth of, the truth of the gospel over and against the wisdom of the world. And I want to press on you this morning, maybe with something that you might need to hear Many of us are mindlessly abdicating the life of our mind to social media, and these are the things that we read on an everyday basis, which most of us can say are silly and stupid, and yet we consume it all the time. Some of us even, and I'm saying it because I'm your pastor, not because I'm mad at you, some of you even post some of this stuff yourself. And it's because somehow we've bought into the idea that the Everyone's opinion is, is equally as valuable, and therefore, whatever somebody said on Facebook, if it felt right in the moment, maybe it's what I should live my life based on. Paul says, no, not everybody's opinion is valuable equally. In fact, we should value God's opinion on things most of all, but what does that require? It requires for you to be dependent on God's truth over and above your own, and over and above maybe your you know, 7,342nd Facebook friend. And trust God at his word. Do you find yourself meditating on the word? Do you find yourself meditating on the truths of the gospel? Do you surround yourself with people who also help you to meditate on the truths of the gospel? This is what community is meant to be, right? It's meant to be where we sit alongside one another and we actually speak the truth in love to each other. And if that truth is rooted in thousands and thousands of years, ancient wisdom of Scripture, not rooted in our best practices right now based on how I'm feeling and what I ate for lunch, but instead on the truths of God. This habit will bring joy if we're willing to be vulnerable and dependent on God's truth above and beyond our own. Okay, last one. Paul ends like this. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So what does he say at the end? He says that there's actually a universal standard, a way of living that we should pursue. Shocking, right? That there's actually characteristics and character that we should pursue and that primarily that's the way of Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to say, John 15, abide in me and I in you for apart from me you can do nothing. C.S. Lewis says, obedience is difficult and nearly impossible. And if you don't believe me, just ask someone who's tried it, actually. Have you ever just tried to walk righteously? You'll realize it's tough. So to pursue godliness in all means that we have to depend on God with every ounce of help that we can get. This morning, I want to ask, in light of prayer, in light of meditation on the truths of Scripture, in light of walking in the way that Jesus calls us to walk? Do we take our holiness seriously? Are we keen to pursue a life that models Jesus? Are we keen to live a life worthy for others to model? 
Have we looked for a wiser, more spiritually mature Christian to follow and try to pattern our lives after like Paul encourages us to here? Why not? If, if that, those things aren't so, why not? I would posit to you, perhaps it's because we're more independent than God calls us to be. And so in turn, we can be more prideful than we even know we are. We can trust ourselves more than we trust God at times. In closing, there are two promises that are rooted in this text that I think are really helpful. Number one, Paul promises that if we are dependent and live our lives dependent on God, that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Number two, Paul promises that if we are to live a life dependent on God, that the God of peace will be with us. So these promises represent two things. Number one, the power of God presiding over your life. Number two, the presence of God in the midst of your life. The peace of God and the God of peace. And this is what we need most. We need God's power to guard our hearts and minds from our anxieties. We need God's presence to be with us in the midst of our lives. And this promise is fulfilled to every single believer in the gospel of Jesus. Is Jesus not the embodiment of God's power and the direct presence of God with us? That's why God told his parents to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is who Jesus was, exhibiting the power of God and the presence of God to give us peace. And so now we have Christ, which gives us the peace that we need to not have to grasp for control, but to rest in the presence of Christ. And perhaps if you're saying this morning, listen, Court, I want to be, I want to live a dependent life on God. I want that, but I just, I struggle to grasp for my own. How can I do that? I would say perhaps there's no greater example of dependence than the cross of Christ. Think of Jesus, our elder brother, as he walked in utmost vulnerability, depending on the Father all the way to Calvary. His final words are, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. I depend on you with my very life. And this morning, I encourage us to follow suit with whole self, body, mind, and spirit to the Lord in dependence. What is the promise that we get in return? We get the peace of God and we get the God of peace, the power of God and the presence of God in Christ. And so this morning, if you'll stand to your feet, we'll take communion together. If you're not sure, if you really believe, if you trust Jesus, I would ask that you would refrain this morning and consider Christ. The offer that you have in Jesus this morning is a life of peace with the Prince of Peace. The offer that you have in Christ this morning is joy that you can't create on your own. As individually rugged as you wanna be, you can't conjure up the peace that Jesus offers. Believer, as you come to the table and take of the representation of the broken body and blood of Jesus. Remember that what Jesus did at the cross was not just a great and kind thing to do. It was what was necessary because you and I are dependent on him. And we weren't just dependent when we were saved. We're dependent all the way until we see him face to face. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, um, I confess to you that in my heart of hearts, I don't depend on you regularly. I want to but at times my heart lurches to try to find solutions to my own problems. Father, I believe that my friends, under the sound of my voice, many of them, I don't know their particular story, but I could imagine that they also have areas of their lives where they look to try and find solutions for problems they were never meant to solve. 
They looked to find strength to overpower and overcome issues that they were never meant to overpower and overcome. And so Holy Spirit, would you help them to open their hands that are tight-fisted around those things that they care most about and to relinquish to you, depend upon you, our sovereign and beautiful King. As we take of communion today, let us remember that the cross was a great exchange of our burden onto your shoulders and your yoke, which is easy and light onto ours. May we feel light leaving out of here this morning, Lord, because you are a dependable Savior and we cast our anxieties on you in Jesus' name. You may come and take it.